the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of all ages, amen. So I think um, uh, when uh, Justina communicated with me, she sort of told me a topic that people would be interested in, is sort of um, how does our faith relate to our knowledge, relate to what we learn, um, how do we keep believing as we keep learning? And it seems like the more we learn, sometimes the harder it is for us to continue believing. Um, and so, what do we do? Sort of, what do we do with uh, what do we do with all of that? So, um, well, not everybody who uh, grows in their knowledge uh, finds it harder to believe. So, if others have found it. Uh, that their knowledge informed their belief, then who knows, maybe it's possible for us as well. And, you know, we can look to famous figures, for example, like Albert Einstein is often quoted to have said that the, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. And this was a, a, in an interview um, uh, in uh, uh, Albert Einstein's 50s, um, and he didn't say that I believe in God, he was asked, do you believe in God? And he answered, I am not an atheist. Um, and he talked about how atheism is, uh, is uh, very difficult to accept um, and a complex set of beliefs. And atheism was very uh, primitive um, as compared to what it is now. Now it's a very complex set of beliefs. Forgive me when I say primitive, I don't in any mean mean that in any way as a put down or as to say it's like unintelligent or foolish in fact rather it's it's an incredibly complex belief system people think that atheism is not to believe in anything rather atheism is to believe in in a very very complex belief system and we can discuss that later um, as uh, as we go as we move along so where's the problem why is it that as I've grown older, as I've gone to school more, as I've become more knowledgeable, more specialized, I'm looking at the audience and I recognize a great number of you and I know you all to be, you know, highly intelligent, highly successful people who are, you know, like you know a whole lot more than me. Um, in very specific domains, we live in a we live in a world, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit. That is becoming incredibly more complex, and people who are making any kind of difference, even on a very micro level, need to be a whole lot more specialized. Um, what's the issue? The issue in general for most people, and I've read tons of testimonies of people who have lost their faith. A little confession between me and you. So I got rid of Facebook around the time the whole priesthood thing came up and when I was going to get ordained and this and that. And I never really had the, the, the time or the desire to kind of like, you know, kind of bring it back to life. Um, but I developed a new addiction, right? My new addiction, which I developed in the last sort of, uh, you know, a few months that can kind of like eat up hours and hours is reading the testimonies of, of people who are self-proclaimed atheists. Reading like people's testimonies of why they stopped believing. And I find it fascinating. I really, really find it fascinating. I find it so interesting 
the different paths people have taken and how they ended up, where they ended up. And to be honest with you, I recognize that any one of us, myself included, could easily walk down some of those paths. And I'm not pretending to be smarter or holier or better than any of these people. And that's why I want to learn from their experience so I can see where the pitfalls and the traps are for my faith. My, my gestalt, I haven't read this anywhere. I mean, most of the stuff I try to present is, I try to present research. I try to present, I try to present patristics. I try to present, present, sorry, I try to present the word of God. But this is not, I, I need to give you that kind of like proviso. This is my gestalt. This is my, my hunch is that the reason we find it harder to believe sometimes as we grow in uh, knowledge, in education, in letters at the end of my name, in dollars, uh, you know, uh, on my, you know, notice, uh, notice of assessment is simply because of this. I grew up with a childhood faith and I accepted it. Or I encountered God through experiences in my childhood. I had that and I was happy. And a lot of the people that I speak to and a lot of the stories that I read, these people were genuinely happy and satisfied with the faith they had at that time. But this isn't that time. This isn't that time. Things have changed. I've learned more stuff. I've read more stuff. I'm more powerful as is measurable by my influence, number of friends, um, salary, etc. But my faith hasn't. And it's all good and everything is fine until my faith is put to the test. Until I walk into my adult life and I meet adult-sized problems and I'm still running on childhood faith, childhood knowledge, and chi a childhood experience of God. You know, sometimes I ask people, like, you know, just a kind of like an icebreaker question when I'm sitting with people who I presume to be spiritual. Maybe I shouldn't presume anything about anyone, which would probably be better. But giving people the benefit of this, sometimes I ask people, so tell me what God has done in your life today, right? Sometimes they say something, and then I ask myself the question, what, is God, what has God done in your life recently, John? And I start thinking, I start thinking to myself, last week, I was in a real pinch, and this and that happened. Um, Ten days ago, this and this and that, and I felt, I really felt, a, you know, it was divine intervention. God really reached his hand out and helped me. Sometimes I think to myself, has God been dead for like the last ten days? Did he go on holiday? Like, you know, was he like, was he too busy for me? You remember that story with Elijah and the priests of Baal? If you read between the lines, it's absolutely hilarious, right? So Elijah is this guy who is so infuriated that the people of God are not worshiping God. Moreover, the leaders of the people of God are leading them to not worship God because the leader, the king, married some idolatrous woman, Jezebel. So he gets his knickers all in a knot about this, right? And he goes and he tells him it's not going to rain and so on. Y'all probably know the story as good as I do, maybe even better and so on, right? 
at a certain point, he challenges the priests of Baal, the priests of the idol. And he tells them, look, we're going to go up on the mountain, on Mount Carmel, and we're going to offer a sacrifice. I'm going to offer a sacrifice, you're going to offer a sacrifice. Whichever sacrifice is accepted by God, everyone will know that this is the true God, and all the people will worship that God. And he turns to the people and says, what do you say? And all the people say, we're with you. Whatever, you know, whichever God proves himself. So they have a contest. So they get up there, and Elijah being, you know, the, the, the polite, you know, gentleman that he is, says, ladies first, to the priests of Baal, right? And uh, they, they go ahead, and they do their thing, right? And they offer their sacrifice, and they're dancing around the altar, and they're chanting, and they start shouting louder and louder, and by now it's like, you know, it was like 6 a.m. when they started, and by now it's like 9, and then it's 10, and then it's noon, and then it's like afternoon, and, and uh, Elijah starts teasing them. He says, maybe, you're, maybe, maybe your God's out of town. Maybe he's, maybe he's occupied. He says, maybe he's otherwise disposed. Otherwise disposed was the polite way in scripture of saying, maybe he's doing his, maybe he's in the washroom, right? <laughs> maybe he's in the washroom. He's not able to attend to you. You know, he's been in the washroom for the last nine hours, right? He's making fun of them, right? And then, of course, Elijah sets up his altar, digs a ditch around it, pours water all over it, all over the wood, all over the sacrifice, all over everything, because it's gonna, it's supposed to go up in flames, right? So, like, to prove, like, you know, and then he prays and fire comes down from heaven and so on, and then he kills all the priests of Baal, and people worship God, and everybody lives happily ever after. Not really. Everybody want, king and queen want to kill Elijah now, and he runs for his life. But the point is this. The point is, he tells the priests of Baal, has your God gone on holiday? Is he absent? Is he gone? Is he unable to speak for himself, or to show himself, or to do something? Now, I know Elijah was likely saying it at the time with some humor and some sarcasm. But the question comes to me, is my God, is the God that I believed in when I was eight years old, is the God that I believed in when I was 12 years old, is the God that I believed in when I was 15 years old, is that God still alive? Is he still relevant? Is he still powerful? Or was it that I was just so small, he appeared so big? Right? And then now, when now when my aunt, who's never done anything bad to anybody, has every medical condition known under, under, under heaven, right? And when I meet the best person I've ever met in my life, morally the very best person I've ever met in my entire life, and that person is, is not Christian, right? And I'm left with these questions, like, what's going to happen to this person? Why do bad things happen to good people? All of these questions that arise, is the faith that I've been carrying along with me, like a suitcase that I never bothered to open, I just kind of carry it around with me, is that faith a match for the issues that I encounter as an adult? I think my humble diagnosis is that I think that's what we're dealing with when we find our faith shaken up, is that God has been asleep in my world since I was eight years old. Or maybe he's been alive and well and active, but I've been on another planet. 1 Corinthians 13, St. Paul says this. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, 
But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Let us commit today, you and I together, let us both commit that today we put away childish things. We acknowledge, I acknowledge my faith and I acknowledge the supernatural experiences I had as a child and how I really believed in God and without a shadow of a doubt. And I, and he was real to me and I accepted him and I believed in him and I built my life based on him. Right? The childhood faith that I have is real and it satisfied me and I loved it. But let's, let's fess up, folks. A lot of us, myself included, right? We have these punctual little experiences with God, right? Our God is a dynamic God. He's alive and He's well. You know, I met Him yesterday. He's in good health. I want to reassure you, right? You know, He's fine. But where am I? What radio station am I tuned into? What wavelength am I on? St. Paul says, when I was a child, you know, I acted as a child. Now it's time for me to put away childish things. I ask myself sometimes, you know, when I was 15, how did I used to pray? How did I used to read the Bible? What, you know, what level of concern did I have for the salvation of other people's souls and their well-being? Where am I at today? Do I care as much today as a priest for the salvation of people's souls as I did when I was 15 years old. I don't know. For me personally, I'm really, really honest with you, the answers are a little embarrassing. Maybe it's time for me to chime in with St. Paul and say, when I became a man, what are we childish things? Let's pause for a second and just see what does it mean to be a man? I want to ask you this question. Let's open it up to the audience for a second and say, what does it mean to be a man in this context? All grown up. Sounds like a good answer. I'm sure your answers are going to be as good as mine. Better. What else? What do you think it means to be a man? Take responsibility for your actions. Here we're talking about faith. So for my faith, yeah, sounds good. What else? I'm not looking for an answer in particular or anything. I'm, I'm open to anything. I'm just opening, opening the floor to your, your answers. I really, 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 really like when um, Solomon becomes king. When Solomon becomes king, King David gives him some instructions in 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2. Really easy to remember, really easy to find. King David says to his son Solomon, he says, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Ladies in the audience, you want to marry a man or a boy? You want to marry a man? King David's telling you what a man is right here. Gentlemen in the audience, this is the bar. Okay? You don't meet this bar? Sorry, this is what the Bible says. Right? You're still a boy. I asked this question in rural Africa. To some boys. 
some boys, men, whatever, some guys. Anyways, just me and some guys, right? And they all laughed. They, they, they burst out laughing when I asked this question. And I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to, to you know, go on mission trips, stuff like that. But the, 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 the um, prototypical, you know, uh, uh, person in that area that I've had the opportunity to serve and not to make stereotypes or generalizations or whatever is incredibly shy. Incredibly shy. But they just burst out laughing. And then I was asking, why are you laughing? They said, well, you know, the difference between a boy and a man. I'm like, well, what's the difference between a boy and a man? They laughed, they laughed some more, right? And they said, well, Boy and a man. Boy and a man. Like <laughs> they don't want to say, right? And I'm like, no, no, say, say, tell me, you know. And by now it's starting to look like the squirrel. I'm a little slow and I'm not very smart, but the squirrel is starting to run faster on the wheel, and I think I figured it out. They're like, yeah, like a boy, you know, he's never uh, like you know, like been alone with a woman. And then I was like, oh, okay. So that's the definition of a boy and a man. What does King David say when he says, prove yourself a man? Verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to me, to your way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. To be obedient to God. That's what King David defines a man to be when he's speaking to Solomon. St. Paul is telling us, folks, time to put away my childish faith. I'm not disregarding it. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not uh, throwing it out. No, but it's time to, you know, I'm, I'm in my 20s. I'm in my 30s. I'm in my 40s. It's time to have, you know, life experience that reflects a life with God of 20, 30, 40 years, not a life with God of 8 or 10 or 12 years, right? So what is faith? Let's just have a definition that we can work with together. The Bible's definition, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What I love about this definition is, first of all, it's the Word of God. It's nothing nicer than the Word of God. But, it, you know, second to that is that it gives us something we can work with. Faith, as described by Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, the pen of St. Paul, is not fanaticism. Fanaticism is to believe with no rationale. Rather, God created you and he created me rational creatures. Right? We're rational. Like, you see something, you know, you assess it, you do some kind of analysis in your mind, and you come up with some conclusion. Right? And sometimes we get our wires crossed, sometimes we, we consider relationships to be relationships of causation when they're not, they're just associations. Right? Sometimes this is 
oh, I saw this person at the mall with this person, then thus they must be together. No, maybe they just happened to cross paths. They haven't seen each other for like, you know, two years. And so they stopped to chat for a while and then, and then they walked off. Or I don't know, whatever kind of funny associations we make, correlations, causations. These are all things that are very, 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 very different. But that's not our topic for tonight. The point is, is that we see things, we make observations from those observations, we make conclusions. We're rational creatures, right? <laughs> so asking somebody to no longer be rational, right? That's what we call fanaticism, right? Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing is a topic for another day, but it's certainly different from faith. Faith is right here, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Be right with you. Faith is based on evidence. We have a question. So faith is based on evidence. Let me give you an example that will make it very easy for us to, to, to understand what we're talking about. Think of a court of law. In a court of law, the judge and jury sit and they examine evidence. All the evidence which is available is brought before them. And they continue bringing evidence until there's no more evidence to be brought. I'm not a lawyer. Maybe some of you are. Maybe some of you can correct me because I, I don't know that much about law. I've only been in, in, in court once for a ticket that I contested. And uh, that's all I know of, of, of personal experience. Otherwise, I'm really good at watching TV. So, right, evidence is brought before the judge and jury, and they examine all the evidence. And once they've examined all the evidence, they come up with the conclusion which is the most reasonable to them. But no matter what evidence you bring, somebody can argue against it. If they tell you, look, look, Your Honor, look, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Gentlemen, ladies of the jury. This bullet belongs to this gun, was found in the defendant. The gun has the print in the victim, has the prints of the defendant on it. Gunpowder on the defendant's clothes, found at the time of the murder, blah, blah, blah. And everything lines up. Anyone can still say, you know, it was placed there. He was framed. I don't know, right? You can always come up with some rationalization around it. Why? Because all the pieces of the evidence don't bring you completely from point A to point B. They bring you close, but not close enough. So they may bring you, you know, this close, this close, that close, closer, but they'll never bring you completely from point A to point B. The only thing that can bring you completely from point A to point B is an eyewitness. And an eyewitness is completely uncontestable. Like if you say, I saw this, I heard this, I experienced this, no one can tell you, no, you didn't. Like, like what, what do you mean, no, you didn't? Like, I was there, you weren't. What do you mean, no, you didn't, right? You can say, I don't believe you. You can say, I think you were under influence. You can say, I think you were hallucinating. You can say all kinds of things, right? Which could be very true, could be legitimate, could be not. But you can't tell somebody what they did and didn't see, what they did and didn't hear, and so on. And that's why Jesus, when it comes to evangelism, which is a separate topic, commands us to go out and to witness. He doesn't tell us to go out and to convert. 
or he doesn't tell us to go out and to um, convince, none of that. He just tells us to go out and to witness. Tell people what you saw, what you heard, what St. John says in, in John chapter 1, how he opens, 1 John chapter 1, how he opens his letter. What our eyes have seen, what our ears have heard, what our hands have handled, the word of life. I'm not here to tell you something, and I'm not here. John isn't here to tell you something I, don't, I haven't experienced personally. I haven't seen personally. I know the difference between my life with God when it's genuine and based on a genuine life with God and when I'm putting on a show for you. I know the difference, and I'm pretty good at putting on a show. Sometimes people don't know. I think they do but I know they do. My congregation, because they see me all the time, they're really sweet. They'll come up to me and say, Father John, what do you think? Maybe you need Mary need a holiday. You know? You're working so hard, and they're so... Right? I've learned that every time I get one of those comments, I don't need to start planning a holiday. I need to start planning a half-day or a full-day or a two-day retreat with God. Because some of the pieces... I aren't working. I'm trying to deal with today's life with yesterday's faith. Right? My spiritual father, every every single time I speak to him, tells me, hey, teach me something about God. He's my spiritual father, but that's how he opens every conversation. And if I if I call him like in the morning or I haven't had time to sit with God or whatever, and I tell him uh, uh, I and I tell him why, oh, you know, I didn't have a chance to sit with God today yet or whatever, he'll tell me, um, you got any day old? You know, when you go to the bakery and they've got like the stuff that's half price, you know, the day old bread, right? You know, he says it in Arabic, Hetman Bayt, you know, Hetman Bayt, right? But I'll tell you something, folks. We can live on day old bread, but we can't live on 10 year old bread. We can't live on 20 year old bread, right? So, what's, where, where is my life with God today? So, we're talking about evidence. The judge and jury, they get all the evidence. Short of the, the, the judge himself having an eyewitness, right? Short of the judge himself being an eyewitness of the event or the crime or whatever, he's, all the evidence is going to bring him close, but it's never going to bring him the whole way. One of the frustrations of young people today, from the people I get to talk to, and I don't know if this is you're in that boat or not, but I presume that at least some of you are, is that you feel that when you ask a question, you don't always get an answer that satisfies your soul. Right? And the reason is very simple. Because every single one of us needs a different level of evidence before they're ready to make that leap of faith. Like every one of us, after a while, every one of us has a breaking point with different questions in life. And maybe some questions you need a lot more evidence for because they really, they're really personal. And other things you're like, you don't really care. Like, you know, so if the church teaches this, you're kind of happy to accept it. Like, it's not a big deal because that issue is not a big deal to you, right? But like, you know, this issue is like, it's a really big deal to you, right? And you have every right. Now, the reality is, is that you feel really deeply and strongly about things that other people don't feel really deeply and strongly about. So if you're asking somebody who doesn't feel very strongly about something, and you ask them something, why is this that way? And they, they're pretty satisfied with the message that the church teaches, you know? Then they're going to tell you, well, I guess that's what the church teaches. And they're going to be happy with that, right? And, and then the different people are different. Some people are extremely analytical and they want 
you know, an enormous amount of evidence about everything. Some people, you know, they take life pretty simply and they're, and they're happy with that, right? So I've realized that I shouldn't judge anybody. Let the people who are happy with their simple ideas, to be happy with their simple ideas, and I don't mean simple here as, a, as a, in any way derogatory, like I'm not putting anybody down, right? And let me just recognize that they're happy with their, with the evidence that they have and have enough faith to carry on. Let me continue to search for my answers. Does that answer your question a little bit? The difference between, whereas fanaticism has nothing to do with all of this. Fanaticism is, right? Like, if you jump up and down three times, do three matanyas, turn around three times, you will levitate, right? So, let me do it. I will just do, right, whatever I was told to do, because that's what I was told to do, right? Um, right? That, there's no evidence involved in there. There's no rational process, right? It's just blindly accepting what I was blindly told. And that's, and that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's honestly, in all honesty, that's not how God created us to be. Even when you get to speak to really simple people, and I tell you, when I use the word simple here, forgive me, let me just clarify again. I'm not using that as in a derogatory way at all. In fact, I envy these people, right? Because they don't ask a million questions. You tell them, God is good, they say, great. And they believe, they genuinely believe you, and they're genuinely happy that God is good, and God is all-powerful, and He'll take care of your life. And they're so happy. They, they like, really, honestly, I wish to be like that. Really, I promise you, I, I promise you, they don't stay up at night pondering all these weird, convoluted eventualities that are never going to happen, right? Right? Where I'm losing sleep and they're living in peace, right? So, but even those people, if you ask them, why is God good? They have an answer for you. They have an answer for you. I have a friend like that. He's a very, very successful engineer. He is not, he's, he's Dutch, now Coptic, he's more Orthodox than me, more Coptic than me, and uh, you ask him, why is God good? I had this conversation with him, why is God good? He said, well, like, God is not limited by the number of possibilities we're limited by. So God is good because what are his other options? To be bad? No one chooses to be bad. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, let me be bad today, right? And if they do, like, it's like a perverted thought. Like, it's like a, you know, and then they kind of come back to being good. I was like, but why wouldn't God one day wake up and say, I don't like you. His name is Tim. I don't like you, Tim. Let's fry Tim today. Actually, no, let's not fry Tim all in one blow. Let's, like, slow cook him, you know? Why wouldn't God do that? Why would he? See, yeah, he still has a rational process, it's just in fewer steps. Like, for me, I need to get to step number 429 before I can say, okay, this makes sense, I accept this. He gets to step 3, and he's like, yeah, I accept this. Well, of course, right? Makes sense, right? I envy him. In addition to all of that, we live, we are products of, and live, and have to live with, the information age. Anything you want to know is available. I remember a time, not to date myself or anything, where if I found any spiritual book about anything under the sun that was remotely reliable, I would buy it. Because information wasn't available. 
And to find a book, oh my goodness, was like, you know, pulling teeth. And my friends would come over and they would look at my library and they were like blown away, right? And I had all kinds of books there and I read all kinds of stuff, and right? Who uses books anymore? Like, you know, I have like, like, like 15 bazillion books on my Kindle and on my Google Drive and on my this and on my that, you know? Anything I want to know about anything I can find at the touch of my fingertips. My previous profession, there was a time where, where doctors were valued on their wealth of knowledge. Now doctors are valued on, you know, how, how quickly they can get to a computer terminal and look something up, right? Because the amount of information has exploded dramatically that it's just become impossible to keep up, right? In addition to that, and this is, we're going to get to this, right, in more detail. Welcome to the eight-second era. The average attention span of someone today when reading something or looking something up is about eight seconds. If you blog, you have eight seconds to, to get somebody hooked. If you guest speak, you have eight seconds to get people engaged. After that, they're in la la land. They're very polite, they sit there nicely, and they nod their heads, and they see everybody else chuckling, they chuckle along, you know what I mean? But, there you go, chuckling, one person chuckles, the others chuckle as well, yeah, good, 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 yeah, right? But no one's home, right? Why? Because there's so much information, there's so many other places my brain can go, right? In this, in this manner of seconds. Right? It's estimated that, that by 2020, there will only be 4 billion people on the earth. There will be $4 trillion in revenue, 25 million apps out there, 25 billion embedded intelligent systems all connected to each other, and over 50 trillion gigabytes of data. Who can keep up? And now you're supposed to be the judge, you're supposed to be the jury, and you're supposed to assess all the evidence so you can make a conclusion when there's 50 trillion gigabytes of data out there? Who can do that? Who can do that? So naturally, what ends up happening is we get tired. And we get tired, so when we get tired, stop thinking. Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know. I asked Abuna, he gave me like an answer. It was, it was good, but I wasn't so satisfied. He told me to read this book. I started reading this book, but with my eight-second attention span, I picked it up and put it down about 14 times before I finished the first chapter. And then I moved on to other things, right? And in the end, I still don't know why good, bad, things happen to, bad things happen to good people. But I have a friend at work who's atheist because something really bad happened to somebody he really loved. And I don't know. I mean, he's a really smart guy. He's a really nice guy. He's not a bad person. It's not like becoming atheist like made him like Satan or something. He's a really nice guy. He's actually like a nicer guy than me. More likely to go out of his way to help somebody than me and so on. And I don't know, right? I don't know what to make of this. You know, my other colleague in the cubicle on the other side, he's gay. He's also really nice. He's a great guy, right? And I read a little bit and I ask and then I get tired. And I get tired, so what do I do? Just leave it alone. I leave it alone. I don't have a conclusion. I'm dissatisfied. I find it hard to do. I think that's what's going on. And doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. 
there was a time in my life where I I doubted deeply. It was a time when I started reading um, about existentialism and I started reading existential works and, and Jean Sartre and Albert Camus and all that kind of stuff, right? I went to French schools and I went way off the deep end. Like, I came to a point where I wasn't, I was not sure at all whether we're really here. Like, how do we know that this isn't a dream and real life isn't when you wake up? Well, maybe when you wake up, you're waking up from your dream, but that's also part of a dream. It's like a dream and a dream and a dream, you know, those little Russian dolls, right? You know, and um, this all sounds to you like, you know, somebody just making noise, but I actually, like, I actually got lost in these thoughts, right? And I got, I, I was terrorized. I felt like I was sitting in a void. And I remember rollerblading over to my Abuna's house. This Abuna was a saint and he sat me down next to him and he sat and listened to me for like an hour going on about all these existential thoughts. And I was expecting him to just snap at me and tell me like, you know, like, like, what are you saying? This is nonsense or something. But he didn't. He just listened very patiently until I was done and I was crying. And I was, I really, I really was, was, was questioning, like, well, like, are we really here? You know? Anyhow, and then he, he told me this example. He told me, look, when we have new faith, it's like a new, it's like a little sapling that got planted. And the, the natural, he was really into plants and stuff. He loved planting stuff. He's gone to heaven. He said that it's like a little, like, it's like planting. So it's like a little sapling, little tree that you planted. And uh, naturally, it's going to want to get as much water as fast as it can. Well, the easiest way for it to grow its roots is superficially. Because the soil there is softer, it's not as packed down, so the roots are able to grow in it more. And there's more water superficially than there is deep. Now, what's the problem with that? Is that how do these trees, how do they grow? Well, the rain or the water, or whatever, dissolves the nutrients in the soil. So the water that's deep down under is more rich than the water that's above. So how does a how does a plant end up growing its roots deep? Growing up, like we've been talking. Well, God allows for a huge gust of wind to come, and storms rage against this tiny little sapling. And the sapling is screaming to heaven saying, God, I'm going to get ripped out of the earth. Give me a chance. Slow down on me. This is way too much, right? And the, and the winds of doubt push us left and right and left and right, you know? And you feel like you're getting, you feel like you're getting, like, beaten up in a boxing match by all of these doubting thoughts. So what does the sapling do? Naturally. Like, it's not like, like a thoughtful process. It just happens naturally. It starts to grow its roots deeply. And when the next storm comes, sapling doesn't teeter-totter nearly as much. So doubt is not contrary to faith. Doubt can enforce our faith if you see it through. If you get tired and you get fed up halfway through the process and you abort the process and go do something else, then it won't. You just end up with unanswered questions and remaining doubts. But if you follow that doubt the whole way through, it will prove to you 
eventually you'll collect enough evidence to be firmly convinced and satisfied to your satisfaction, not mine, not your mother's, not your grandmother's, not your distant cousin somewhere else, no, but your, to your satisfaction, whether this is true or it is not. And that's what we need to do, just not to give up. Keep questioning. And the truth is not afraid of questioning. The truth is not afraid of questioning. The truth is happy to be examined. And the more it is examined, the more it brings new light, the more it brings new ideas, the more it brings new, well, they're not really new, they're new to me. Of course, they've been around for like a bazillion years, but they're new to me. The more I learn, the more I delight in the knowledge that I'm learning. So let's get really specific, okay? What are the seven most common questions that we encounter when um, when we ask people in general in Western culture about to express themselves and to share what are their, their questions about God, about religion, about faith, about believing, about anything at all. So they're not in any particular order, but the top four are probably the top four or so, right? Has science disproved God? Does religion do more harm than good? Is faith irrational? Why does God allow suffering? What about other religions? How does the New Age movement relate to Christianity? And is the Trinity unbiblical, unbelievable, and irrelevant? Now, you may have questions that may not be one of these questions, which is fair, but a lot of questions that people have fit into one of these general categories. For example, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? is really a subsidiary of why does God allow suffering, right? You know, like why do bad things happen to good people? It would be great if bad things didn't happen to good people, but it would be even better if bad things didn't happen to anybody, right? So why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow suffering? So you find a lot of the, a lot of the questions that you have, that other people have, are subsidiaries of, of, these, of these questions, are like under the umbrella of one of these questions. 